0: to the show. This is William L. Myers, Jr., and you're listening to Writing Wrongs on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today I have the privilege of talking with New York Times bestselling author Scott Turow. Scott Turow's novels have been recognized as the gold standard for legal thrillers since his novel, Presumed Innocent, in 1987. We're going to be talking about writing, about law and about Scott Chorow's latest novel, *The Last Trial*. Scott, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Bill. I'm
0: uh, glad to be around. Thank you. You're welcome. We'll have we'll have a, a fun time today. Um, I want to start, Scott, with your background. I saw that you won a fellowship at Stanford University Creative Writing Center. That you actually then taught creative writing at Stanford. And then after that, you went to Harvard Law School. I'm familiar with lawyers wanting to become writers. You seem to have turned it on its head. What moved you to switch from pursuing writing to becoming a lawyer? Well,
1: I, I, um, I always wanted to be a novelist. And, uh, but what I didn't want to be and what I was on the road to becoming was an English professor.
0: And there's nothing
1: wrong with being an English professor, um, but I wasn't as interested in that as I was in, you know, other fields of endeavor. And, uh, you know, the, when I started to ask myself, what do I want to do, uh, far and away, the most exciting jobs that my friends had were the people who were working in criminal law whether they were prosecutors or defense lawyers. I just thought the whole process was enthralling. And so, you know, I began to ask myself, do you really want to be a lawyer? And um, I had political prejudices against it in those days. I would have told you that lawyers were the chainmail fist of the ruling class. (laughs) And um, I didn't really know much. Uh, I didn't really know much about what lawyers actually did. Uh, My dad hated lawyers, so I didn't know any attorneys besides my friends who had recently become lawyers uh, after college. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it just the more I learned, the more enchanting it seemed to me. And everybody told me in a sexist phrase that doesn't get repeated very often anymore, the law is a jealous mistress, meaning that I wouldn't have time to write. But I thought, you know, I'm not going to let somebody else's expectations dictate my life. Uh, I'm going to try it. And, uh, you know, uh, I remember somebody saying to me, because I was wrestling with the decision to go to law school, because i had been offered a really good academic job. So, you know, which would you more regret? Would you, uh, you know, if you look, as you see yourself and look ahead, would you, have greater regrets if you didn't go to law school or if you took this job. And I said, oh, it was clear to me when this guy asked the question that I would really regret not going to law school. I was that curious about the law. And so I went. Uh, and that's that's how I made this U-turn.
0: It and then worked you went out
1: really well because I, mm-hmm. I, I wrote my agent an apologetic letter because she'd been trying to sell one of the many unpublished novels I had written (laughs) to them. And um, she took the letter and showed it to an editor, and he turned around and wrote a contract on the spot for me to write a book about my experiences as a first-year law student.
0: And that Uh, became 1L.
1: That was 1L. And uh, I don't think I've ever in my life had a moment of, uh, you know, the education of Henry Adams. He writes, you know, moments of sabering irony. And uh, that was sabering irony when I decided to go to law school uh, with putting my literary career in limbo and ended up with a book contract. So, uh, but that was 1L.
0: Were you still in law school when you wrote 1L or did you write it after you completed law school? No, I wrote, um, I wrote 1L, uh, took
1: notes in a journal during my first year, mm-hmm. finished it in the time between my first and second year, and, um, and it was published while I was a third-year law student. Now, for those who have read 1L, uh, it's a nonfiction book. Uh, I changed the names to protect the guilty, as it were, but all of my classmates and professors knew exactly who they were in the book. And of course I would have preferred not to publish it uh, while I was uh, on the law school campus. But the editor who bought the book was a man named Ned Chase, now of blessed memory. And Ned uh, is Chevy Chase's father. And I add that just, so you can understand that he was every bit as zany as his more famous son
0: and after okay. i had
1: finished the manuscript and sent it into him he called me up and he said i have just one question about this book and i yes I, I said you don't like you don't like the way it's written he says no no the writing is fine i said you don't like the way it's typed because i had typed it on a broken typewriter I struck between the lines. Now he says we can read the damn thing. He says I just need you to remind me why did I ever want to buy this book. <laughs> so uh, I I I I managed to um, sell him the the book all over again, for which there'd never been a sales pitch, uh, but I came up with one and he agreed to publish it. But I couldn't take a chance on asking him to wait another year because he would. He, he would forget again um, you know, why he had any interest in this book. So I had to strike while the iron was hot. And it came out while I was in my third year in law school, and I quickly
0: became a marked man on campus. I'll bet. I'll bet. So then you graduate law school, and do you, you go into private practice with a law firm right away?
1: No. Um,
0: I um, – As I said, my
1: my huge interest was in the criminal law and uh, I went to work mostly so I could get off the Harvard Law School campus. But uh, since I was, as I say, in in everybody's crosshairs, I went to work in the Boston District Attorney's Office and uh, I already had been an intern. Uh, The year before in the U.S. attorney's office in Chicago, and uh, they agreed to hire me there as an assistant U.S. attorney straight out of law school doesn't happen anymore, but uh, I got the job. And so I went from law school to the U.S. attorney's office in Chicago and was a prosecutor there for eight years.
0: And where, where in that timeline did the novel "Presumed Innocent" come out? Were you still, were you still with the government, or had you gone into private practice by then? No,
1: um, I was. Um, I went to work on a little novel, uh, and uh, I sent it to my agent in New York, who I'd met because she was. Ned Chase's assistant. And um, by the time she called me back to tell me that she had a young editor interested in it, I said, I said, you know, don't bother. I'm working on something much better. And I was writing on the morning commuter train. And mm-hmm. what I was writing, even though it was only 25, 30 minutes a day, was uh, what became Presumed Innocent. And I worked on it throughout my time. As uh, an assistant U.S. attorney, my ex-wife, God bless her, as she never tires of reminding me, uh, <laughs> encouraged me to take us take a summer uh, away from the law and uh, finish the novel. And uh, she had always felt a little cheated because she had married a writer and ended up with a lawyer, and she really she 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 was not as keen on lawyers as. As she as she was on writers, uh, although she now has a daughter, was a lawyer. But I, I digress. Anyway, I I took the summer, uh, and I finished the novel. I was, you know, I had two kids by then, a third on the way, and so uh, I I had agreed to take a job at the end of the summer, and that's when I went into private practice with the firm that was then called Son and Shine and. Is now called Dentons, uh, but uh, so presumed innocent um, was uh, actually published when uh, right near the end of my first year in in private
0: practice. Um, did your experience as an attorney inform the writing? Did you bring lessons to the writing um, from the legal career? Uh, you know without
1: question um I had always been um one of the things about academic life that I found kind of um difficult was um, the way people had um not just different views about literature but they treated them as ideologies Mm -hmm. and um you know, you had the realists on one side and the anti-realists on the other. And uh, I remember I kind of stunned one of my professors who was sort of one of these postmodern guys. And I said, you know, my mind, a great novel is a book that can be read and appreciated by a bus driver on one hand and an English professor on the other. And... uh You know, he thought that was preposterous. Uh, You know, Ezra Pound had said that uh, the poet is the antenna of the race and he will never be understood by the bullet-headed many, Uh, meaning that, you know, art art is not for the masses. And uh, I just didn't, didn't buy that, but sitting in the courtroom, as an assistant U.S. attorney, I remember I was uh, in court uh, watching a trial, and it was a it was a relatively routine case about a guy who had operated a ring selling stolen food stamps, mm-hmm. and and yet when the government star witness got on the stand and told the story of how something that, you know, the community regarded as deeply wrong had occurred, you couldn't hear a pin drop. Every person in the courtroom, the the so-called box, the, you know, the people who were everyday spectators, people who just walked in, everybody was spellbound. And I just suddenly had this revelation that, if if you really want to write about something that will appeal to the English professor and the bus driver, this is it, what you are doing. Um, that and I, and I took lessons from being a trial lawyer and a prosecutor about, you know, t- telling a story and, um, you know, not being afraid of the things that the, you know, the high art types look down their noses at, uh, and, you know, like plot, uh, and, and I, you know, took to heart the lesson that every trial lawyer learns, which is, first and foremost, you, you've you got to keep them interested. Uh, you've got to tell them a good story, uh, but you, you have to keep the jury interested, uh, and, you know, they you have the opportunity to tell your story just as novelists do. through uh, You can call them witnesses, or you can call them characters. Uh, but there were a lot of lessons in common. And um, you know, I, I always say being a lawyer made me a better writer. Uh, and one one thing I learned that I, I didn't learn as much as a writing fellow at Stanford was that not every word. Um, I write is deathless. And uh, when a judge gives you 15 pages, he doesn't give you 17 because you just, because you know, your your writing is so good. Uh, You know, he or she's giving you 15 pages and uh, they'll toss your brief out if you give them 17. So yeah, I learned something about efficiency with language in the Mm -hmm. practice of law as well.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you this. If being a lawyer made you a better writer, did being a writer make you a better lawyer? Um, in a way,
1: uh, I'm not sure that um, this wasn't in, um, in my nature already, but being a criminal lawyer, uh, and this is true of both prosecutors and defense lawyers, Uh, you have to understand people with um, aberrant personalities Um, and you know this because those are who your witnesses are your witnesses are other criminals when you're a prosecutor when you're a defense lawyer they're your clients Um, but you know they've got their own point of view Uh, they all feel victimized by the criminal process uh, and I, I came to understand uh, the bona fides of, of that um, and part of what helped me imagine the world as they were seeing it was my experience as a novelist and you know because if you're doing well as a novelist you're, you've imagined what it's like to walk through the world in somebody, somebody else's shoes. So uh, and I, that same perspective um, was and has been helpful to me uh, in the practice of criminal law, where you know whether it's the witness or the client, you have somebody sitting there who whose experience in some ways is really alien from yours. Uh, you know, if, if you, you you haven't broken that law. Uh, You haven't, you know, given in to impulse uh, the same way that people who are charged and are guilty of criminal offenses have. Uh, But uh, they still have their reasons, and being able to understand that the way I try to understand my characters, uh, you know, has been very helpful to me as a practicing lawyer.
0: Okay. Let Let me pivot now. And I want, to, I want to talk about this novel, The Last Trial. I'm reading it myself now. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, the novel centers around Sandy Stern, who uh, your fans will remember from Presumed Innocent and uh, Burden of Proof. And would you just tell us a little bit about where Sandy Stern is in his life when The Last Trial Begins. Where is he in his life, and where is he in his career now?
1: Sure. Um, people listening to us may remember Sandy Stern as the character that Raul Julia played, the um, defense lawyer in uh, in Presumed Innocent. And uh, Sandy, I, I, I loved. I love Sandy Stern. I discovered him halfway through the writing of Presumed Innocent. And if you're lucky, there's always a character who runs away with the novel. And Sandy Stern was, was that character in Presumed Innocent. And she became the main character in my second novel, The Burden of Proof, and has always made an appearance uh, in virtually every novel that followed, either floating by in the background, uh, sometimes mentioned only in a sentence or two, which was the case in my last novel, testimony, uh, or with a lesser role. Um, and uh, when I, you know, decided to come back to him, I, I try to keep um, the cr- chronology of these interrelated novels all set in the imaginary Kindle County. I try to keep the chronology uh, faithful to the chronology of life so that Sandy, uh, when I began writing about him a couple of years ago, had now reached the age of 85. And he is on his um, last, um, last, legs as a practicing lawyer and um, he's there when an old friend a man named Kirill Pascoe who was a Nobel Prize winner in medicine comes to Stern uh, and Stern's already seen the articles about Kirill in the Wall Street Journal Uh, and Kirill has developed a very um, successful cancer um, drug called G. Livia and Stern knows all about G. Livia because he's one of the first people who was treated with it and it's prolonged his life. Um, It it really has been almost a miracle cure for him, but there is a problem with G. Livia and that after, people had been on it for about a year, a smaller number of them die quickly of uh, an unexpected allergic reaction. And the government says that Kirill knew that. He knew that and didn't disclose it uh, and uh, went ahead and got FDA approval on a fast-track basis for the drug uh, and essentially decided that, you know, the bodies could fall Where they may. And when the whole House of Cards got ready to collapse on him, when a reporter from the Wall Street Journal called to tell Kirill that there were these reports of these unexpected deaths, he turned around and sold $20 million worth of stock in his own company. So when Kirill comes to Stern, he's about to be charged with racketeering, mail fraud, uh, insider trading and even murder. And uh, because she, Livia has really saved Stern's life, he feels honor-bound when PAFCO says to him, uh, I saved your life, now you uh, do your best to save mine. And so Stern agrees to take the case after trying to talk PAFCO into hiring somebody younger and more reliable uh, he wants he wants Stern, and uh, Stern tries the case with his daughter, who's been his law partner for 30 years. But when he comes and tells her that he's going to do this, she looks at him and says, "Dad, he didn't come to you just because your friend, his friend, he wanted a lawyer he could lie to. Right? He wanted a lawyer who wouldn't challenge his his malarkey. So that's that." that is the setup for the last trial.
0: Is is Sandy Stern going to face some serious moral quandaries as the story unfolds? Um, yes.
1: Although at the age of 85 and after practicing law for 60 years, um, they are not ones that he has faced before. Um, Probably the most unexpected one is that uh, there's one of Kirill's um, colleagues in the founding of this uh, drug company, Tafco Therapeutics, is a younger woman who's fallen out with Kirill and uh, moved, uh, of all places, to Naples, Florida. And uh, Stern, even at the age of 85, finds her very flirtatious and attractive. And, of course, he knows that there's no place for that in his representation of Kirill Pafko. Uh, and, you know, this woman is antagonistic to Pafko and is going to be a government witness and has just agreed to be interviewed in advance. But um, that that is one ethical and moral distraction that Stern was not prepared for uh, when he took the case. Far more challenging, of course, is the issue that his daughter spotlighted for him uh, long before the case began, which is, is he representing PAFCO because PAFCO wanted uh, someone who would not uh, challenge his, uh, his deceptions and his BS? and, uh, and that's, that's another dilemma for Stern, although it is certainly one that defense lawyers face routinely.
0: Let me, because let me, um, we don't have a lot more time, I want to ask you a little bit about writing. You, you said, and it struck me, that sure. you discovered Sandy Stern halfway through Presumed Innocent. Tell, tell right. the readers, tell the listeners what you meant by that. Well, um, I had
1: I had started writing on the morning commuter train, and I knew I was writing about this prosecutor, as I was then, who was investigating the murder of a woman who was his former lover. That's Rusty Savage and Carolyn right. Paulinas. Uh, but I had no idea when I started that, that Rusty was going to end up accused of that crime. And, frankly, the, uh, the genesis of that was that I had this crusty old agent at the time who tried to sell my novels uh, and, and had sold 1L. And she said, ah, what are you doing? And I started to describe this book to her, and she stopped me. She says, well, there's a trial in there, isn't there? And I always found her so intimidating that I just said yes intuitively. Uh, and then I had to figure out what the trial was, which is how rusty ended up getting accused of the crime. Well, if he was going to be accused then he had to have a defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. And that was where Sandy Stern came from. And, you know, he became, um, a, a very arresting figure. And indeed one of my publishers, uh, and dear friends, Larry Kirschbaum, uh, wrote me a note over the weekend, and he said, you know, I just reread Presumed Innocent uh, after reading the last trial, and he said, I would argue with you today that uh, Presumed Innocent is really Sandy's book. It's not really Rusty's book, uh, because Sandy, as the defense lawyer, is really controlling the action for right. most of the book. Rusty, Rusty is just an observer uh, watching Sandy do his tricks.
0: So, do you do you find that it happens um, more frequently than you'd expect that you start out writing a character, and maybe he's just going to be a plot device or a two dimensional person, but the character turns out to have a stronger personality than you think, a stronger presence than you think. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I, I know you you've discovered the same thing in your own work, Bill, but. That always sounds like the most romantic, you know, baloney when novelists say that the characters take on a life of their own. But they do. And the only way I can explain this to people is that writing a novel is just like the experience that five and six year old kids have of playing with their imaginary friends. And those imaginary friends, you know, you can watch, as I do, watch my grandchildren in conversation with their imaginary friends. And, um, you know, the imaginary friends are saying things that, that, that seems quite independent of the, of the little child who's having this conversation. And that's just what happens with characters. They, of course, they're really part of you, but they sure don't seem to be. And they make their yeah. own decisions. They do yeah, they stupid do. They things. Be... They say amusing things. They can, they can be – somehow they know
0: who they want to be. Yeah, they seem to take on a, on a life of their own in many ways. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this. Let me. St- I'm going to step back here. Um, you've been a writer, a very successful writer, for a long time. And the thing about your books is these are not insipid, plot-driven Procedurals. These are very rich novels with complex human emotions, complex human relationships, and I mean, I, I've asked people, has your, has your life affected or informed your writing, and I, and I want to take it in a different direction with you, Scott, and ask you, as someone who's written such complex characters and such complex relationships, has the writing transferred itself to your life in the sense that you see real people differently or more deeply than you did before you started writing and creating your own characters?
1: Hmm. I, you know, I, I want to believe that it's the wisdom of living that gets carried into the novels um, instead of uh, the other way around. Uh, but, you know, everything you do in life teaches you something. And so um, perhaps I'm a, you know, more patient person because I've been forced to grapple with my characters and to understand them, and perhaps I'm, you know, doing the same thing now. Uh, I can't really say, but, um, you know, I, I think it's my understanding of life from having lived it uh, that, that, that's coming through in the novels. But it could be the novelist who's you know, talking to me at times as a husband and a father and uh, a friend.
0: Okay. If you had, if you had a one piece of advice to give to budding writers um, right now, early in their careers, um, what would it be?
1: It's really simple. Write. You know, you can, it, you know, writers write and people who don't write aren't writers. And uh, you have to stick your butt in a chair and write. And you have to do it on a regular basis. Novels do not write themselves. And if you don't understand that, um, you know, writing a novel is a long term project that has to be done like any other job day by day. Uh, If you don't understand that about writing, uh, you're never going to get there. Uh, So you have to, as my friend Tom Ziggle says, you have to log a lot of pages and writing, even if it's execrable and unpublished, uh, every page you write will teach you something.
0: Thank you for that. And I think I'll end on that note uh this is William L Myers Jr. You're listening to Writing Wrongs on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I've been talking with Scott Harrow about writing and about his new book The Last Trial which uh features Sandy Stern who was center court and in presumed innocent and in burden of proof and played roles in Scott's other books. It's a great book. I'm reading it now myself. I would urge everyone to buy this book. Um, Scott, would you just tell your listeners, if you want to, your social media credentials where they can look you up? Uh, well,
1: let's see. Um, I think my Twitter handle is at Scott so that's easy. And my website is scottturo. dot com. Uh, three T's in a row in the middle and one R, so it's S C O T T T U R O W. dot com, and that'll take you to. Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, uh, in case I've gotten it wrong.
0: Thank you. And, again, this is William L. Myers, Jr. You can find me and my books at www.WilliamLMyersJr.com, on Twitter at, at William Myers, Jr., and on Amazon. Scott, thank you again for taking the time and sharing these insights with us.
1: Phil, thank you, and good luck to you in your own work, too.
0: Thank you.